I've read before that the Bible is filled with God's promises. And I thought I'd start off with a couple of sayings. And I kind of have this sort of set up here as a common sayings that you've probably heard before versus actually God's promises that are rooted in his word. Tell me if you've heard these before. God will never give you more than you can handle. This too shall pass. Heaven gained another angel. Everything happens for a reason. God helps those that help themselves. Have you heard those before? Are those statements God's promises, or are they just common sayings that some Christians say? Today we're going to look at that last one. God helps those that help themselves. And we're going to look at that and we're going to see if that's actually a, God, a promise from God. How do you do that? How do you know if that's a promise from God? I'm going to give you five questions that I ask when I hear somebody say something like that or I hear somebody make a claim. Oh, I'm claiming this promise. I'm claim-, you know, we hear this a lot in Christian circles and Christianese. That's the language. Uh, is it a saying or is it a real promise? And so I, wanna, I really want you, like I don't want this to be my information. I don't want this to be something that I can do for you. I want to teach you how you can do it for yourself. How you can ask these questions to challenge a saying that you might have heard or maybe you've even believed that was a promise from God. And I would like you to know how to discern if it is or isn't. How does that sound to you? Would that be good for you? Okay, good. Because I would hate for you to believe something that isn't a promise. I would hate it if you claim something for yourself that wasn't a promise from God. Because ultimately, if you do that, then you're going to be very disappointed with God And you might even think that God is a promise breaker, and he is not a promise breaker. He is a promise keeper. He will always keep his promises. So, the first question that you always want to ask when it comes to something that you've heard or something you kind of hear repeated, or maybe, honestly, maybe it's something that you see people put up on their social media sites, and it's a saying like this saying that I want to talk about today, and I'm using this as an example. It leads into the promise that I have this morning, but it's God helps those that help themselves. So I would say what Bible verses in context show that this is truly a promise from God, that God helps those that help themselves. Now, you'll find Bible verses that say God helps us. True? Absolutely. You'll find Bible verses that say we should help ourselves. True? But will you find Bible verses in context that say God helps those that help themselves. Because that saying is conditional, is it not? It's a conditional statement, meaning you have to help yourself if you want God to help you. And I'm telling you, God's help isn't conditional. God's love isn't conditional. Because if that were the case, nobody would go to heaven. Think about it. Human history proves we don't get more holy on our own. We get more helly, if that's a word. 
We'll see this on Wednesday. If you come on Wednesday night at 7, we have a Roman, we're studying the book of Romans. We just got started. And we're going to see that left to our own vices, we go downhill quickly. That's our nature. So we thank God that we don't have to wait. He doesn't wait for us to help ourselves. In fact, Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He initiated it. I love the song, Jesus, Lover of My Soul, because in the, the words of that chorus say that he, sets, he, he actually um, pulls us up, lift, lifts us up from the miry clay that we get our feet stuck in, and he sets us on the rock, the rock of Christ. So we really don't even have to ask any more questions. The first question kind of shows us that this isn't really a biblical saying. This isn't God's promise that God helps those that help themselves. It's a saying that people like to say, but it's not really rooted in God's word. But let's just say you, we're just going to keep going. You want to hear the other questions probably, right? So we'll go to question number two. Is the promise specific or general? When you hear something, and, and let's say it's, it's rooted in the word, and it, it, you want to ask the question, is it specific? Was it a specific promise to certain people? Or is it a general promise for all people? Was it only for, for those people in which the time it was written? Or is it for us all now? And I'll be honest, the saying, God helps those that help themselves, kind of sounds, the conditional, if you will, kind of sounds a little bit like it was rooted in the Old Testament where uh, they often would have to repent uh, and, and they would, you know, the book of Judges comes to mind, you know, the roller coaster ride there where they mess up and then they get it right and they come back to God. and So it's kind of this roller coaster. But is, it pro is the promise specific or general? Third question, can I claim it? For me and or others that I love and, and care about. Many of God's promises, to be honest with you, are for real, genuine, born-again, spirit-filled Christians. Many of them. Many of them are not for all people. We sometimes have a hard time distinguishing that. But that's the truth. A lot of the promises that we have in the Bible are not for everyone. They're for Christians. Sometimes it's not a promise that you can claim, but it's something that you can certainly find comfort in when God says something in his word. The fourth question is, is the promise conditional? And if it is, what's the condition? This saying that we have here is conditional. God helps those that help themselves. It's conditional. It says we act first. We take the initiative. But then that will take you to the final question, when can I get this promise? When will God fulfill this promise? And that condition is as soon as I do my part, as soon as I help myself, God will certainly help me. But again, can you see where this will lead a person? If they think this is a promise from God, if they think that, that God's love, God's Help is totally conditional on what we do. But we do our part, and God doesn't do his part. They're going to get angry, and they might walk away from God. Some examples. 
I prayed for my loved one to be healed, but they died. God broke his promise. I gave $100 to the church, and God didn't give me back 1000 God broke his promise. I help my neighbor, but nobody helps me. God keeps breaking his promise. That's what happens when you believe something that's not really a promise. God helps those that help themselves. Not a promise. Not rooted in God's word. But there is a promise that's like it. And I want you to know what that is. And that brings me to the title, God's Promise Today to Make You Holy. God's promise is to make you holy. Because what God finishes, or what God begins, he will finish. God will finish what he started in you. And he will make you holy. I'm going to show you in some verses here that are in context to support this promise that if you're a born-again, spirit-filled Christian, the promise is for you. It can be claimed by all Christians. The promise is unconditional, and God is fulfilling this promise every day in your life until he glorifies you in heaven. That's the promise that we have, that God will make you holy. We need to all maybe smile a little bit, take a deep breath, kind of looking out there like, I know, summer's over, it stinks, man, I I get it. A little cold, a little chilly, you're not too happy about it, I know, but you came to church, smile a little bit for me. Lighten the mood. God wants to make you holy. God's promise is he'll make you holy. Is this a new promise? that God wants to make you holy. Did this just start a little while ago? Is this a a 21st century thing? Is this since Jesus came on the scene 2,000 years ago? Or is this from the very beginning that God wants his people to be holy? Let's say you start reading your Bible. Maybe you're going to make a New Year's resolution in 2023. You're going to read the whole Bible all the way through, and you're going to start in the beginning which I always say is a big mistake, but I know some people just don't listen, you know what I mean? And they start reading, and you read through Genesis, and you're like, hey, that's kind of cool, I like that, not too bad. And then Exodus is kind of keeping along with the, the story of what's going on, and then, bam, you hit Leviticus, and you're like, oh my goodness, the rules and the laws. And, and, and if you fight your way through it, if you fight through Leviticus, this is what you look like. But then you got numbers (laughs) in Deuteronomy. But yeah, so Leviticus is is, as hard as it is to read that because, let's face it, God gave the Jewish people 613 commands, rules. But do you know why he did that? There's a word that shows up 80 times in the book of Leviticus. And that word is holy. Holy. The rules, the commands, are to make his people holy. He wants them to be holy, set apart, sanctified, sacred for his purposes. In fact, there's one verse that Peter quotes in uh, Leviticus 11.16 that sums up the whole book. 
be holy because I am holy. God wants you to be holy because he's holy. And he made you in his image. He wants you to be sacred, set apart, sanctified. And he hasn't changed his mind. Like I said, I'll bring you to that verse a little bit later that Peter said, be holy. So God will finish what he started in you. He wants to make you holy. And you should feel good about that. I've heard it so many times, and I'm going off script here, but I've heard it so many times that that, uh, people are afraid to become a Christian because they're going to have to stop doing the things they like doing. Because they kind of know those things that they're doing in their life that aren't really good for them. But they like doing them. And they don't want to stop doing them. But the thing is, is when you're a real Christian and you have the Holy Spirit in you, you don't want to do those things anymore. You want to do the things that please God. That's how you know you're a Christian. You want to please God. You want to glorify Him. I uh, find great comfort in this one, this, these two verses. And I've probably read these two verses over and over many times. And you know, when you get to the end of a book, and 1 Thessalonians doesn't have that many chapters, um, you get to the end of the book, this is the last chapter, probably the, end, the last few verses, sometimes you just sort of skim over it. You know, especially when he's greeting people's names you can't pronounce, right? And, 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 but listen to these two verses, because I've, in preparation here, like these two verses... So comforting. May the God of peace himself sanctify. That's the word holy, make holy. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He's talking to you, Christians. He's saying to you, I'm going to make you holy. And I promise you, I am faithful to make it happen. I will do it in you. That's so comforting. I love it. We're constantly being made holy. Not by what we do in our efforts, thank God, by him who's faithful. He finishes what he starts. And likewise in Philippians 1.6, Paul tells that church in Philippi, I'm sure of this, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will finish what he started. He will make you holy. Do you find those words comforting, church? Can I hear you this morning? Can I hear an amen? Oh, you are alive. I like it. You are excited to be here. How did it all start? How did you become a Christian? Ephesians 1, verse 13. In him you also heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You believed in him. You you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's important. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Three things happen. This is how it got started. This is how a person becomes a Christian. You hear the word of truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation. Jesus died for your sins and was raised from the dead. You believe that. You put your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior. And then, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's a guarantee of your inheritance. 
your eternity in heaven with God. And once you're sealed, nothing can change that. I know you love Romans 8, 38 and 39. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus said this just to further drive home the point that it's, 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 there's, he has sealed you. John 10, 27-29. Jesus is the good shepherd. He says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me. He's greater than all, and no one is able to snatch you out of the Father's hand. There's a saying. Once saved, always saved. Perhaps you've heard that before. Now to make it more biblical for my free will friends, once saved, always saved, if you're truly saved. If you know anything about Armenianism, you will find that quite funny. God does not remove His Holy Spirit. He seals you. It's a guarantee. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is, a, is in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. So why do some Christians then believe you can lose your salvation? Maybe you've been there before. Maybe you thought, uh-oh, if I, if I do something wrong, I might lose my salvation. Or I should say, I've been corrected on this by my free will friends you give up your salvation. You don't lose it. You walk away. You give up your salvation. Why, why is it that some believe this? I think it's because they think they see it in someone's life. They think they see it. Because sometimes people act just like Christians. They might get baptized with water. They might take communion on Sunday. They might pray and read their Bible but they don't actually believe. They don't actually have the Holy Spirit living in them. John explains this. 1 John 2, verses 19 and 20. If you have your program in the chair next to you, there's a program there with all these verses in there, and I think there's one I found a little mistake there. It's my fault, not Chrissy's who prints it. I want to just make that disclaimer there. It's 1 John 2, verses 19 and 20. But this is what John says. They went out from us, meaning they looked like us, but they were not of us. Because if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. They abandoned. They walked away. They they apostatized. That it might become plain that they are all not of us. But... You have been anointed by the Holy One. You have the Holy Spirit in you. Then you have all knowledge. You have spiritual eyes to see the truth. Pretty clear to me. Pretty pretty straightforward there. There will be people that will look like Christians. There will be people that will stand in churches and preach. We call them false prophets. 
They will teach you things that aren't biblical, aren't truthful. They'll twist the word of God. I seem to know someone who twists the word of God in the beginning with Adam and Eve. His name is Satan. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's a liar. That's his native language. So we always have to be on guard and look out for these people. There are many that will act and look like Christians. But what about you? What about your faith? What if you're concerned with yours or someone you love? Sometimes life can get messy. Sometimes life can be painful. Sometimes you find yourself walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And those times can really, truly test your faith, can't they? Yeah. And sometimes you may be tempted to walk away from God. Maybe you did. Maybe you're here today and you've been away from God for a very long time. But if you've been there, and there's still something in you that's drawing you back to God. Your faith has remained. You trusted, even when you couldn't see. You're back now, even though you know it's been a while. The valley is the best path to God's glory. That's that Psalm 23. The Lord is our shepherd. He takes you through the valley because when you get through the valley... That's the glory. You're with the Lord. And even if you wander away, he chases you down, he leaves the 99, his love is reckless for you. Maybe you're in a rough place right now. Maybe you're questioning your faith. Well, let me encourage you. Let me tell you to take the test. The test. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 test. One question. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself? Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test. It's a one-question test. Is Christ in you? Do you believe the truth about Christ? Do you believe what the Bible reveals? And if you do, you're, you've passed the test. Sometimes we make it so complicated. It's not that complicated. What do you believe about Jesus? You believe he's your Lord and Savior? You pass the test. Because he's faithful. He'll finish what he started in you. He wants to make you holy. Now, how does he do it? How does God make you holy? How does that happen? Exactly. You're interested in that, I think. You're like, all right, come on, this is the practical stuff. Help me out. All right. I, 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 I have no problem. I'm very pragmatic. A little story to help you understand. When our daughter Ellie was about nine, she's 17 now, we asked her if, well, I asked her, uh, if she wanted to play basketball. You know what I asked her. It was a church league upwards basketball, very positive. I said, you know, trying to get her into it. And she went to the trials and she liked it enough that we signed her up. So, I just want you to know that. I didn't force her. All right? She admitted she liked it. She wanted to sign up. So, we signed her up, and about the third week, third week of games, one, one day a week practice, one game on the weekend. Not a huge commitment. So, third week, Saturday, we're going to go to the game. All right, Ellie, get your uniform on. Let's go. She informed me she didn't want to go. Why don't you want to go, Ellie? I don't feel like going. Okay. 
I, I want you to know, by the way, she's not here today. Uh, she's out of town. That's why I'm telling the story, okay? <laughs> if you're watching on Facebook, honey, I'm sorry, but I'm not really that sorry. She didn't want to go because she didn't feel like it. But I wanted to help her understand that we make a commitment, we follow through on the commitment, even if we don't feel like it. Parents, can we get an amen for that? Yeah, well, that's when the tears started. And then there was kicking and screaming because Dad was carrying her out to the van. Neighbors looking through their windows, what's going on out there? So I got her in a van, I tied her up, I mean, I put her seatbelt on. And uh, she's strong for a nine-year-old. We got her to the game, and, and she followed through, and there was never an incident after that. So uh, she's a quick learner. We like, we like Ellie because she's a quick learner. She finished the season, and uh, sadly for me, of course, being the basketball coach, she only played one season. That was it. But my highlight was that one shot she took all season. One shot all season, and she made it. So her claim to fame is she never missed a shot in basketball. So good job, Ellie. But is that how God makes you holy? Does he carry you kicking and screaming to church? Is that God's way of making you holy? The answer is no. God doesn't force you. However, like my Italian grandmother did very well, he will make you feel guilty. Because <laughs> he created you with a conscience. And if you have the Spirit living in you, he doesn't like it when you don't live up to his name. His name is Holy Spirit. He wants you to be holy. Think about it. You have the Holy Spirit living in you and you're not going to be holy? The Holy Spirit's like, come on, what's wrong with you? Be holy, man. I'm holy. Guilt is a guide to get you back on track. Guilt is a guide to get you back on track. That's what the Holy Spirit wants you to be. Now, you know when you become a new creation in Christ, it doesn't automatically remove your passions, as the Bible puts it, your fleshly desires. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verses 14 and 15, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now, you know the way you used to be. You know the sin that easily entangled you. You may even recall uh, being trapped, feeling trapped in a stronghold, in an addiction that was ruining your life. And here you are now, a new creation in Christ. But you know that your flesh doesn't just lay down. You know that if you're not careful, you could fall back into those old habits or even start new bad habits. So the Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, tells us in chapter 5, verse 16, But I say to you, walk by the Spirit that's living in you. Shouldn't be that hard. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. Because the desires of your flesh are in direct conflict with the Spirit. That's what it says in verse 17. They're opposed to one another. They keep you from doing the things that you want to do. 
But in verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus, what do we do? We crucify the flesh with its passions and its desires. And if you're having trouble with your old habits, I want you to know this. You're not alone. Many have struggled, but many have endured. Many have succeeded. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, I just love that because it makes you go back to Hebrews 11 and read about the wonderful people that walked in faith with Christ before they even knew Christ in the Old Testament. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. And how do we run a race? I've learned this because I've run lots of races. When you're behind someone else, you fix your eyes on their back. And it's magical. You, you, you catch up to them if your eyes are fixed on them. And that's what it says here. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat at the right hand of the throne of God. Keep your eyes on Jesus and you can overcome. Remember Peter? He put his eyes on Jesus. He got out of the boat. He walked on water. But then he looked at the waves and he sank. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And if you mess up, fess up. God has a way of making you holy. And that's why I think communion is so wonderful. And I love having communion uh, once a month here. We do this the first Sunday of the month. Because when you look at what happened at communion, you realize that Jesus sanctified his disciples. He did something very practical, yet it had a very spiritual connection for them. It helped them understand something. They didn't always get it right away. We don't always get it right away. But something he did for them physically was actually something he did for them spiritually. John 13 tells the story. He poured water into a basin. He began to wash his disciples' feet he, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, do you wash my feet? He was embarrassed. The servant was supposed to do this. Jesus answered him, what I'm doing now you don't understand. You boys never understand right now, but you'll get it. Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, not just my feet, my hands and my head. Jesus said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you, because he knew who would betray him. That's why he said not all are clean. So clearly there's a teaching going on here. And many times when we look at this passage, we just don't get past the, the simple teaching that Jesus was was showing his disciples how to be servants. That the teacher washed the feet, that did the job of the servant. But there's another teaching here that's very important for us today. That if we're going to be made holy, then we need to get our feet washed. Don't worry, I'm not doing it for you today. <laughs> my wife knows that feet aren't my thing. You see, when the disciples walked around in a dirty road, a dirt road with sandals on, their feet got dirty. And they would go to a place for dinner, and that was customary, wash the feet. 
Jesus explained this to Peter, that you're going to walk with God and you're going to still get dirty. You're still going to sin and you're going to need to get cleaned up. But he pointed out to him that it's not your hands and your head that need to be washed because you're already saved, Peter. You've already professed your faith in me as God. Your hands don't have blood on them. Your sins will be forgiven by the blood of Jesus on the cross. That's the truth, right? The, the blood of Jesus is what for, There's no hands on his, uh, blood on his hands. But Peter would still make mistakes. He would still need to get his feet washed. He would still need to confess his sin, repent. Because when we sin, it breaks our fellowship with God. Sin distances us from a holy God. And aren't we in the same boat as Peter? Don't we need to constantly confess and repent? Which is why communion is so important for us as a church. I don't know why churches would not celebrate and remember to do communion regularly. The Bible doesn't say how often, it just says do it regularly until Jesus comes back. And when we take communion, we're remembering that the, the bread is the body of Christ broken for us. The, the blood, uh, the cup is the blood, the new covenant, the promise that, that we have forgiveness through the blood of Jesus on the cross. But we got to remember that when we have communion and we take communion. We need forgiveness. And know that when, what, when, what God started in you, he's going to finish it. He's going to make you holy. But it's a process, is it not? This walk with God, it's a journey. And I, I, I you guys are, I want to, I want to make this walk with you. I mean, to walk alone, it's not fun. It's more fun to walk with others, isn't it? And to go on this journey together. Let's do this walk together, not feeling guilty or somebody carrying us, kicking and screaming. Let's crucify the flesh. Let's walk by the Spirit. Let's grow in grace and knowledge. It's a much more peaceful journey. Jamie and, and AJ are going to come up and, and lead us in our final song. And This is a time where, time where you can wash your feet, figuratively speaking. Time where you can pray, confess your sins to our Lord and Savior, and be purified as the word says. You'll be purified. You'll be clean. 